Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You might not be able to choose how you die, but you absolutely get to choose how you live your life. Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of It Ain't Week to Speak. My name is Sam Webb, and this show is dedicated to ending the stigma around mental health through community, connection, and the hard-hitting truth. I'll be speaking with guests from all over the world about life to inspire and to educate people to speak up so that we can save more lives. Thank you for joining me on this journey. I've literally had to steal away my next guest from her work commitments. She's that busy. She's a very dear friend of mine. Some people know her as Action Alexa. I refer to her as Lex. Her real name is Alexa Tausi. She's had over 16 years of experience in the health and fitness industry as an expert at what she does. She's now internationally recognized as a celebrity trainer, but none of that really matters in Alexa's eyes because she's very committed to what she does, and it doesn't matter who you are and where you're from. She was born into a military family, but her journey started on a mission for muscles when she was bullied relentlessly at school for being too skinny. Her nickname was referred to as Alexa Anorexia, so the gym essentially for her became her safe haven or her sanctuary, and it was the very, very first place that she developed strength both physically and mentally. She's been a living ambassador now for over four years. She helps a lot of people. She's always been there for me. In fact, I've actually lent on her for some training regimes myself. So thank you for that, Alexa. But all in all, she's got a a great story to tell. We're going to explore outlets, what works, what doesn't work. We're going to share skills around how to stay mentally and physically fit, how to commit to your craft, how to stay on track and not get distracted. But most importantly, she's going to dive deep into some of her personal relationships with her mother and father and the impact that that had on her life. But without rambling on too much more, I want to say from the bottom of my heart, Alexa, thank you so much for taking this time out today to to share your expertise and your journey with all of us, because no doubt it's going to be taken on board by a lot of people and implemented. But without anything further, let's all welcome Alexa Tausi. How are you, Lex? Welcome on to the It Ain't Week to Speak podcast show. It is lovely to have you on. And I haven't seen that very vibrant smile of yours for quite some time. How's things been? I know. That's because you are never available. You are like the busiest person I have ever come across in my entire freaking life. But hi. Is that, is that right? Is it? Hello. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. Whereabouts are you right now? You're in Sydney, Australia today, are you? I am in Sydney in my little place in Bondi Beach. Just moved here. It's awesome. Love it. For those of you who don't know, Lex and I go way back. Uh, when I first moved to Sydney, Australia, it would have been six or so years ago. I was introduced to, to Alexa. Actually, you weren't. You tried to hit on my roommate, actually, if I remember Did I? correctly. Yeah, the, the good old DMs. 
I was a grub back then, wasn't I? <laughs> but that being said, Lex, I mean, the moment I met you, you're always putting out positive things in the world and doing things for other people. Ever since I've met you, you've been there for me on a multiple occasions and I've seen you, I've witnessed you around your friends on occasions when they've needed you, you know, at all hours of the morning. Let's go back and talk about fitness. What got you into fitness? I know that you're at Russell Crowe's gym right now in Sydney. That's where you're a elite personal trainer out of. Is that correct? That is correct. I don't know who, and the whole five, no, I've been there seven years now. Oh my God, it's been such a long time. Time has flown. Um, he's a shareholder in the gym now. He doesn't own it so much anymore. It's more Chris's gym. But in the whole seven years I've been there, I've probably seen him in the gym like five times. So I'm not sure it's really his happy place. He hates to work out. <laughs> well, fun story. The first time I ever saw him in the gym, I was doing hip thrusts on the bench opposite and it was quite awkward. Yeah, and you take it you take it pretty serious in the gym, Lex. So that's that that would have been uh, quite eye opening for Russell Crowe. I think it might sure. have been. <laughs> he would have. I reckon he would have been intimidated. Oh, I don't know about that, but it took him it took him a while to chat to me. But um, he's look, he's a really he's a good guy. He likes to preserve his energy and his time. You work alongside a lot of celebrities, whether it's in film and entertainment, or whether it's uh, elite athletes and whatnot coaches of elite athlete teams, sports teams around Australia. So where did all this begin? What got you into fitness in the first place? Growing up, I was a real straighty 180. So I was more of like a teacher's pet, a real sort of academic. And it didn't really change until I was like 15. And when I was 15, two things happened. One, my mom was diagnosed with manic depression. And two, I was being bullied at school for being too skinny. So my nickname at school was actually Alexa Anorexa. And up until that point, I'd really had no body image issues. And that kind of started, I guess, like a ripple effect for me. So I was trying to deal with this stuff at home. I was getting bullied at school. And for me, I just happened to decide that I was going to go on this mission for muscles. And I joined my local gym and that became my safe place from both places. So school was tough. I didn't really have a crowd that I was hanging out with. I was kind of on the outskirts. Like I said, I was, I wouldn't say bullied. It didn't get to that kind of point where I wanted to harm myself or anything, but it was definitely uncomfortable. And the gym for me became a safe place. It became the first place that I felt like I had any control over my life. It became a place where I felt empowered. I bumped into a whole lot of people who really wanted to see me succeed. And it was the first time that that had really happened. And weights for me, you know, lifting, strength training kind of became an analogy for life. You know, it was the first place that I really began to see the connection between what it felt like to be physically strong and then how that translated to me mentally. And that's the first place I really, I guess, not discovered, but found that I had resilience, you know, and it's continued to develop. And for me, that's kind of, I consider that a gift and I got that gift really early on and I love training people, especially women, because I want to give that gift of empowerment to them, regardless of what they're going on in their everyday life. I want training to be their analogy for life. They come in, they feel strong, they leave strong, you know, so that's kind of what I'm all about. Do you think back at school, going through those hardships where you didn't really feel like you had your own group where you could sort of rely on and, and turn to if things got bad, you had to sort of turn to yourself. And, and I guess that built a little bit of resilience from the outset. Do you think uh, that was a big changing and a turning point in your life that what inspired you to sort of go down this route was that name calling and Alexa anorexia. Was that true for you? Were you struggling, do you think, with your eating and, and the way your body looked at that time? 
Not at all. I never, I can honestly say that I have never ever had an eating disorder. I love food. I mean, you know how much I love chocolate. I don't really share food, you know? So for me, like I'd never had an eating disorder. I'd never had body image issues. I was literally just a really small build. My dad's name was Bones. He was a professional or semi-professional cricketer. He played football. That was his nickname. My mum, like he was six foot two. My mum was five foot. They were both in the army. I went to military school until I was 10. Both of them don't look anything like me. You know, my genetic makeup is small, pale, very English. So your dad's obviously very influenced within the sports arena, so to speak. It's not like you didn't come from a family that wasn't active. Being part of military, that's what you do. You have to be active. My dad said he used to take me to cricket matches at Lords, and all I would do is like run around and around and around the field. But I didn't really do any strength training. That was just like I could run for days. But my parents always like, I remember my parents taking me to race meetings. And my mum saying, you are never going to be good at this because you're way too polite. Like I'd be trying to overtake people. I'd be like, excuse me, excuse me. But yeah, I didn't really have, like I wasn't competitive back then. I was just very polite and very reserved. The gym gave me like kind of that character and that strength. So yeah. And then that's helped you to build out in all aspects of your life. And we'll, we'll talk about that later on. But you mentioned earlier that a catalyst as well was, was your, a depressive episode from your mum. Are you able to talk more about that and how that impacted you as a young girl growing up, especially in high school? I mean, that would have had a traumatic impact, especially not being really educated at that time either. Oh my God, back in my day, and that's showing how old I am, um, there was like absolutely no awareness or education or you know, support networks or resources surrounding anything to do with mental health, mental illness or suicide. You know, depression wasn't even a recognized textbook disease. And it was like overnight, my entire life changed. My mom was this stranger. I didn't know who she was. My dad didn't know who she was. And literally half the time, my mom didn't even know who she was. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what was happening. I didn't know what to say, who to say it to, if there was like an appropriate time and place to say anything. So I just said nothing at all. Like none of my friends knew what was happening at home at all. And if you asked me what my dad thought about it, I have absolutely no idea because we never ever had one conversation about it. And I was terrified. Like I didn't know, I didn't want to bring friends home because I never knew what mum I was going to get when I walked in the door. I would have a mum who'd come home and want to cuddle me or who'd want to make me pancakes or who'd, you know, want to know how my day had been. Or I could come home, walk in the door and I would have my mum screaming at me that I was a slut and screaming at me as did I know that she was in labor with me for 38 hours and, you know, I was an ungrateful bitch. And, you know, at this point, like I was a virgin, I'd like, I was very sheltered from the world. I hadn't experienced any of this stuff. And to be faced with that when, you know, not only is your mum saying it's someone who's meant to love you and care for you and protect you, but also to have none of it even have any grounding. It was very confronting for me and I didn't want to take the chance of bringing any friends home for that. As a direct result of all of that, you know, my coping mechanism obviously was to go to the gym. My dad's coping mechanism was to drink and that's where that started. So yeah, it was really tough. I've been very grateful and honoured, I guess, to speak alongside you and hear more about this story in, in, in long form. But that would have had a massive impact on you, obviously, growing up, being around that, uh, the relationship with your mum, that was dramatically impacted, yeah? I mean, yeah. You know, two years later when I was 17, my mum tried to take her life and I walked in. And I often talk about that moment because it was probably 
the most heartbreaking moment of my life because up until that point, I knew that she was struggling. I knew that we were struggling as a family, but I didn't understand that she was at a point where she felt like that was her only option. And I think following that, it was, she survived that day, but something in our relationship died. It's the only way I can explain it because I didn't know how to love her or how to support her after that. And it really did. It impacted our relationship on so many levels. Like I didn't really see her as the parent figure anymore. I felt like I was the parent and that was really, really hard, you know, and on the times where she was really needy or feeling really vulnerable and she would reach out for support, I didn't know how to be there for her. And it took me a long, long, long time to forgive myself for not being able to do that. But it's also, you know, like I have friends that have really interesting family dynamics and it's why I'm so big on just mend whatever bridges you can, tell the people that you care about that you love them because you don't know that you're going to get another chance to do that, you know, and I wish I'd had the opportunity to mend those bridges. Even from the, an outsider like myself listening to you right now, I can, I can see that it, and I can hear it that it changes you. It, it, it really still affects you to this very moment. But I think given the information that you had in the moment of time and the surroundings that you're in, you know, your mom, your dad, yourself, there wasn't so much you could do anyway. I mean, you, you were young. Like we could sit here and say, I could have and should have and, and would have done this stuff. But it sounded like you, you were already juggling a number of different balls at that time and you were trying to be the best for your family and you were trying to be there for your family. And then you mentioned earlier that your dad was sort of, while you were trying to keep things together, your dad was turning to alcohol and then that had its own effect on the family. Did that make things worse, especially with your mother and yourself? And, and how did that play out in the family? Because this is something that I feel that a lot of people would learn from. And I think there's a lot of great takeaways from this. Although, obviously, you've been through some very hard situations in your time. But I'd love, if you don't mind, exploring that a little bit more for me. Yeah, for sure. You know, I guess from a very young age, like I said, that my dad coped by drinking. And that was his thing. Like from the time I was basically 15, my dad was an alcoholic. You know, he eventually died of liver cirrhosis as a direct consequence of being an alcoholic. And I had this two pronged life. So on the one hand, I had found the gym, which was my, you know, my safe place. But on the other hand, I was watching my dad drink his feelings and I started doing the same. So I would, during the week, I would go to the gym. I would go to school. I would hang out with whatever friends I did have in the weekend. I would get absolutely shit faced because I learned from the best and that's what you did. And there was always alcohol lying around my house. And my mum was on this concoction of steroids and there was alcohol in the house and she would drink the alcohol because it was in the house. And the combination of the two made her absolutely fucking crazy. And then my dad would drink because he didn't want to know anything about it. And my parents would have these explosive rows. You know, I can't even remember past the age of 15, one Christmas that we didn't have one a massive argument where my mum would accuse my dad of like hitting her, which I would like to think that that never happened. My dad was like not like that at all, but she would put these ideas in my head. She would say all this really horrible stuff and then my dad would get pissed off and we'd end up like every single Christmas being completely separate entities. Like we never had anything family oriented going on because everyone was just drunk and pissed off. That was really tough. Like I learned to cope by either going to the gym or by drinking. And that would carry through my life until I was 29. So for a long freaking time, that was how I lived my life because I just followed in the footsteps of my parents. It's crazy. That would have taken an enormous toll on you 
growing up. How did you muster up, I guess, at 29 years of age, you, you said 29, it went all the way up to 29. How did you stop there and say, you know what, I'm going to stop drinking. I'm going to give up and give away drinking because I don't want to go down the same path maybe that my that my father went down. And I don't want to result to alcohol as a way to deal with my emotions and my feelings because it wasn't working. How did you identify that? Because there's a lot of people out there that probably know that isn't the, the best outlet for them, but they don't know how to stop it. How did you stop it? I mean, the turning point for me came when I actually went to my dad's funeral. So when I was 29, my dad passed away from liver cirrhosis and I'd been waiting for the call. Like I'd spent my entire life waiting for a phone call that either my mum had died or my dad had died. You know, like no one ever wants to live their life like that. And I remember I was in a chicken shop trying to buy dinner when I got the call and, you know, it was that breakdown moment and I ended up flying. I was living in Hong Kong at the time and I ended up flying back from Hong Kong to New Zealand to go to his funeral. And I went there and I drank his last bottle of whiskey and I got absolutely shit-faced and I threw up all over myself and I fell off the bar and I fell in a ditch later on and then I missed my flight home. And I remember just waking up in the morning with barely any recollection of what had happened. And my partner at the time was like, holy shit, you were so drunk last night. And I was like, oh my God, I can barely ever remember anything. I would have these massive blackouts all the time. And I was like, you know what? I'm fucking not doing this anymore. And, you know, there had been numerous occasions, and I think everyone can relate to me when I say that, you know, if you get drunk on the weekend, come Monday, everyone's like, oh my God, I'm never drinking again. I'm never going to do this again. I don't want to feel like this anymore. You know, and I used to call that self-loathing Sundays because I was very, very familiar with that, that sick feeling when you're waiting for a text from somebody to say that you've done something stupid or said something that had offended somebody or, you know, whatever had happened. And it was just my breaking point. I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. And he sort of like rolled his eyes and was like, yeah, yeah, until next week. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm fucking serious. Like, I'm not doing it anymore. And I went back to Hong Kong and I never touched a drop. It was the best yet the hardest decision I've probably ever made because Again, I think, you know, you can relate if you've ever been out sober, especially in a culture like Australia or New Zealand, where it's a big sporting culture, it is more normal to drink than to go out and be sober. And for me, I didn't go out for six months because every time I went out, it was like someone was always saying to me, you know, come on, don't be so boring. Just have one drink. And I'd be like, yeah, but you don't understand. Like for me, I don't drink because I enjoy the taste. I drink because I want to get drunk and I don't have an off switch. So that was never, ever going to be an option. And people find it really confrontational. The decisions you make about your own life when they feel like you are indirectly challenging their own lifestyle choices. And that was really hard. Like I, it was the beginning of the end of my relationship. My partner still went out every weekend. We ended up spending absolutely no time together whatsoever. It was the end of friendships because I realized who was just calling me to go out for a drink in the weekends versus people who actually wanted to hang out with me and get to know me as a person outside of a bar. And it changed the way I thought about life. You know, for me, there was a girl at my gym who was working there and she had been through drug and alcohol rehabilitation. So she'd been sober for four years. And I remember one day, it would have been a couple of weeks into my, I'm not drinking again. And I remember going to her and saying, how the fuck do you do this? Like, I am angry and I'm frustrated and I've got no outlet anymore. Like, how do you do this if you don't have an outlet? And she was like, you have to find a purpose, something greater than yourself. I was like, okay. She's like, you have to find a hobby, something that's going to distract you enough that you don't think about it. 
And that's how I got into half Ironman. So, you know, once again, the whole theme of fitness, like fitness saved my life. Like I got into half Ironman. No longer was I having FOMO about not being out the weekends because like if I went to bed at eight o'clock on a Saturday night, I knew I had to get up at 4 a.m. in the morning on a Sunday because I had this like six to eight hour marathon training session. I had a new focus. I was like, right, I'm going to commit to training for the world. And then I found this entirely new social circle who absolutely understood what it was that I was trying to do and were willing to support me through it. And that was kind of like, that was the lifeline I needed. I hung out with them in the weekends and I didn't really think about it. But even my boyfriend was like, he would never see me. He wanted to go and get pissed in the weekend and I wanted to chill out. So it was, yeah, it was an interesting time for me, something I don't regret, but it's definitely, I get a lot of messages from people, especially when I do interviews about the whole giving up drinking. And it's a really sad fact that most often people don't understand they have to quit until they actually have no other alternative. I have no doubt in my life that if I hadn't quit drinking, it would have killed me at some point or another for sure. So that was absolutely a turning point in your life. And obviously fitness has saved your life. And it's a very powerful story. One that I'm sure a lot of people can relate to, Lex. What do you say to people who are who are like, let's go out for a drink and they just don't get it. Like, I understand you have to lose friends and you lose relationships and I get that. Do you think it all comes down to a lack of understanding or is it being too judgmental? Like, Because I know, I know being here in LA, I feel like the drinking culture here is nothing like it is back in Australia. Australia's culture is very strong when it comes to drinking and alcohol and stuff like that. What do you say to those people that are uneducated? I would like to think that there's a lack of open-mindedness and understanding and empathy and compassion because how many times did you have to open up and share that story that you've just shared with me with people that questioned why you weren't drinking anymore i pretty much have to do it most times now like i've just found the easiest way to do it now is just to be honest i know how the conversation goes so the easiest thing for me to do is now my dad but my dad was an alcoholic and he died from it and they're like oh fuck okay why can't we start to saying, I just don't drink and it's accepted? Why do we have to come up with this whole life-changing moment and a story of justification to be able to say, you know what, I'm not drinking for someone to say, no worries. I think a lot of people find it confrontational because they kind of want you to justify the way they're behaving. So they get really uncomfortable, like, we'll just have one drink because it makes them feel better about themselves. By me saying I'm not drinking and I've made that choice and I can go out and I know exactly who I am, it's very confronting for those people who potentially recognize that they have a problem, but they aren't ready to deal with it yet. It's very easy to talk about something when you've already been through it and you've already dealt with it. But if you're talking to someone who is in the midst of going through something themselves and they haven't, maybe they've identified that there's something going on with them, maybe they haven't, maybe they just want to remain oblivious because they know that the minute they identify there's something wrong, they're going to have to fucking fix it. Whatever it is at that point in time, that person that is questioning you is not dealing with whatever it is that is going on for them, is not ready to deal with it and you are just mirroring every self-worth thing that they have going on for them. You're just reflecting all their issues back at them and they're like, I don't want to deal with this. It's just easier. You know, if she were to have a drink, it would justify what I'm doing. I don't think there's an easy answer for that. Like I I get a ton of people coming in the gym saying, you know, I want to stop drinking because I want to lose weight. I want to do this or I want to do that. And it's like, you'll stop drinking when the time is absolutely right for you and when you recognize that there is no alternative. And it, it is as simple as that. Like there is no easy way to do it. You have to find something greater than yourself in order to do it. You know, drinking, it's a crutch. 
there are no consequences for people here either. You know, like you have to hit rock bottom yourself to understand that you have to give it up. It's sad, but it's true. I mean, I was really lucky. I remember being, it would have been 24 and being at a pub and it was a friend's birthday and I was drunk as usual. And I was the drunk that would like, I was really fun. I was your best friend. I wanted to buy you a tequila shot. I wanted to dance on tables. But on the flip side of that, I never had an off switch. I drank because I liked the feeling of getting drunk, not because I liked the taste of alcohol. I liked being shit-faced because it meant I could escape from everything. And therefore I would drink till I either threw up until I blacked out or until I went home without telling anybody where I was going. I was that friend. You know, I was the friend that other friends were worried to go out with because they didn't know how the night was going to end up. Well, I just remember a friend coming up to me at this birthday party. It was actually a boyfriend of one of my best friends and him being like, your friends love you, Alexa, but it's really, really hard to be your friend when you're drunk. And I drank some more. I was really hurt. I cried, but I kept drinking. You know, it turns out that guy that said that to me is actually partner of Jacinda Ardern now. So our Prime Minister, like, I have never told him that he was the one that said that to me. At some point, I should send him the interviews that I've done. But yeah, it was crazy. But it would take me another, yeah, five years to learn my lesson and putting myself in a ton of dangerous situations. You know, I remember getting to a point where I had my drink spiked one night and ending up down the road being dragged off into a park with three guys. I've never spoken about it. And having a guy who I didn't know, pull up in a car on the other side of the road, recognizing what was happening and actually come out, pretend he knew me and took me away from the guys that were dragging me into the park, put me in the car and took me home and left a letter in my letterbox the next day. Like that was who I was. I got myself into these situations that I had no control over. And it's amazing how many people, how many young women especially, Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Put themselves in those situations. It's scary. It's terrifying. 
and especially when you lose control. I mean, there's a difference between having one, one or two drinks to having five or 10 drinks when you start losing a lot of control and you don't know where you're at and what you're up to. And that inhibition just falls over really. And then, like you said, you black out, you wake up the next morning and you don't even know what happened the night before. And for all you know, anything could have happened. Anything was possible. A big part of your life, Alexa, now is spent obviously on doing challenges. And you mentioned earlier, a big part of your outlet is fitness. But it's not just the gym that we're talking about here, is it? Because I've, I've been in f- boxing matches alongside <laughs> you. Not, 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 not directly fighting you, but we've fought on the same boxing card a number of times. And hmm. that was another challenge that you decided just to go all in on. And I understand you've got an all-in personality and that you, you're the life of the party and you're very charismatic and cool and fun to be around. <laughs> Talk to me about these other challenges and these other outlets that you are embarking on right now because I know there's a very scarily long one in there somewhere. Yeah, there is. Boxing, I blame you for my broken nose. Uh, (laughs) Let's talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) Wasn't that a good experience? Do a charity boxing match, Alexa. It will be fun, he said. (laughs) (laughs) Two broken ribs and a broken nose later. Uh, I don't know about fun, but it was that fight, the charity fight, was probably the six most terrifying minutes of my life, to be fair. And it's funny because I went into that, like I have this whole philosophy about life that I will say yes to everything that comes up that scares me or challenges me or puts me out of my comfort zone even if I have absolutely no idea how I'm going to do it. And then I'm just going to figure it out along the way. Because I feel like every time I've done that, I've made either one of the biggest and best decisions of my life. I've experienced the most growth or I've met incredible people at the same time. Because I feel like when you start doing things like that, you automatically meet people who are doing exactly the same things and who are on the same journey as you. Um, and you learn new, you learn new oh. things. You're, you're, you're trying things that are outside of your comfort zone because it's something that scares you, which in fact will make you grow whether you win or lose a boxing fight is a perfect example you gained a lot of st- like a lot of value out of that didn't you oh, whether you walked away with two broken ribs and a broken nose <laughs> you, you, you gained that so six much minutes, <laughs> yeah. the six minutes might have been the hardest six minutes of your life but the 12 weeks prior to that when you're training in the boxing gym were probably some of the most rewarding yeah look i love the whole training process um and i have to say like for me the biggest the scariest thing about the whole thing wasn't about getting hit i didn't really care about getting hit like physical pain to me is nothing you get over it for me the biggest thing for that was i was terrified of failing and failing publicly you're in a boxing fight there are two people in that ring it's not a team sport where you can hide behind a team you're either the winner or the loser there are no gray areas you won or you lost and you know for me i ended up with you know losing in front of all of my peers when I was the favorite to win, which was a whole new thing in itself. And it took me a while to understand that I couldn't fail either way because for a lot of people, they wouldn't have gotten the ring in the first place. And that's not like an arrogance thing. That's just a thing. A lot of people don't want to do the things that they're scared of. They don't want to do anything that they feel that they're not going to win or be good at or come out on top. And I didn't come out on top. So yeah. There's a really good pattern here. And and the reason why I want to ask this question is, a lot of your life that you've explained up until this very moment now, and we can talk about your involvement with living and, and the work that you do for communities, especially around Sydney and rural areas and, and, and other places, but people stepping out of their comfort zone and people who are struggling to find that outlet that they need to sort of make a change in their life. For someone struggling right now in an area might not be very similar to yours, 
but how do you motivate someone to go and try these new things? How do you motivate someone enough to go and go, all right, I'm going to try a boxing fight or I'm going to jump on an airplane and travel to a place by myself or I'm going to put my hand up and, and study in these classes? Like, how does someone go from, I know that I need to do something about it, but I don't know how to get there. I don't know what to do. What, what would you tell them? When I toured the US with Kevin Hines as his opening speaker, and I'd never done a big speaking gig like that ever, and the first crowd was like 1,500 people, and I forgot half my speech, and it was a really interesting experience. But while I was over there, I actually met this guy called Sebastian Terry, and he has written this blog or this book called 100 Things, and his whole life was basically about you have this one life, and you're not designed to live in mediocrity. You were designed to live an extraordinary life and have extraordinary experiences that shape you. And in turn, by shaping you, you can help have a more positive impact on the people around you. And I always go back to that because he's written this bucket list of things that he wanted to do in his life, like skydive naked or deliver a baby or minister a wedding or cross a desert, which is why I'm doing the next challenge that I'm sure we'll talk about at some point all these different things that are vast and unique and hugely terrifying, but they're all about like stepping out of your comfort zone. I often remind people what has been the greatest experience of your life. Like what was the last thing in life that brought you joy and why? And usually people have like a pattern of the things that they do in life that bring them joy, whether it's to be with family or friends or adventure activities or animals or whatever. And I'm like, we identify the theme around whatever it was that brought them joy. And I'm like, so why are you not doing more of those things? Because that's what life should be about. It should be about finding the things in life that make you truly happy and then chasing them, whether that be adventure, whether that be family, whether that be whatever it is. You know, it's about finding those things and it's different for everybody, but everybody has like a primary motivator and it's just about remembering what that is because a lot of people have lost it along the way and they're just living life to pay bills every single person no matter who you are or where you're from or your background every single person has the power to change their own life is basically what you're saying 100 percent. like you might not be able to choose how you die but you absolutely get to choose how you live your life every single person gets that choice if something in your life is not making you happy, why the fuck are you still doing it? If the people around you are not bringing you joy or educating you or inspiring you or motivating you or empowering you to be the best person you could be, why the fuck are you hanging out with them? You know, like, and I know it's, it's easier said than done, like, just because you're not happy with your job doesn't mean you can quit everything and find a new job. You know, people have to put you know, money in the bank and pay mortgages and pay bills and actually live. And have responsibilities. And some people have families where they can't step back from work and chase their dreams and passions because they're just not in a fortunate enough position to do that. 100%, but you can take baby steps. Like I did corporate for a long period of time. Like I was in PR marketing for three bars, funnily enough, being, I wouldn't say an alcoholic, but definitely having an issue with alcohol. And for me, like when I started personal training, like I recognized that it was something that I wanted to do. I would be at the gym at five in the morning taking clients before I went to work and then I would be at the gym after work getting up my hours so that eventually I could make the transition from corporate to that. You know, like it's never an easy road, but if you identify that you're not happy, you can definitely start taking steps 
to make a new reality and find like for me it was really really important that i found good people that actually wanted to support that they didn't want to be in competition with me they absolutely wanted to see me do well and they would support that they wanted better for themselves and the minute i started changing things was the minute that I started inviting all this new energy and all these new people into my life because I was on a completely different journey. And you kind of have to embrace that part of it as well because when you're starting something new, it often inevitably means the end of something else. Like people are either driven by fear or love, a love of doing something or a fear of being stuck somewhere else. You've got to hone in on what it is that drives you. Is it fear or is it something that you love and then use that to motivate you to get out of it? Yeah, and it can be a lifelong journey for a lot of people, but every single person definitely has the power to change and make changes in their own life, whether it's taking baby steps, whether it's jumping in the deep end like you do, Lex, on a, <laughs> on a number of occasions. And speaking of jumping in the deep end, talk to us about this uh, horseback challenge you're doing. Talk to us about this. I am in August this year. I'm going to be competing in the Mongol Derby. So there's 35 of us from around the world and it is a thousand kilometer race across the Mongolian desert on semi-wild horses. How did you get into that? And how did you even think of that was the next challenge that you wanted to do? What on earth were you thinking? That's a really good question. <laughs> well, part of like, it's funny because this always ties back. Like when I was in Hong Kong and I got into Half Ironman and I started being really successful with it, I had a producer approach me because they wanted me to race in five of the toughest races around the world and film it for a potential TV show. And so we started researching these potential races and the Mongol Derby was one of the races that came up. Um, the show never went ahead and we never did anything with it. But when I was in the US and I met Sebastian Terry, who'd written the book, he gave me a copy of the book. I came back, I was on my way to live in HQ, actually the Gold Coast the next day when I came back. So I spent two days reading the book. Number 57 on the list was Cross a Desert. And I went, holy shit, this is like serendipitous. This is meant to be. I'm going to cross the fucking desert. So I messaged Sebastian and was like, have you done number 57? And he was like, no, are you going to do it? And I was like, hell yes, I'm going to do it. I messaged the guys at the Mongol Derby the next day and was like, are there any openings for this year? They messaged me like going, because this was last year. And they're like, no, but there was openings for 2020. I was like, awesome. I'm going to apply. They sent me the link. I applied. I went into the gym the next day. And this is a big testament to when you say you're going to do something, the universe definitely, there's a shift in energy. When you commit to something, things happen around you that are going to make this happen. And I went into the gym the next day and I was like, I'm going to do the Mongol Derby. And Chris was like, that sounds really familiar. I feel like we've got a member who's done this. Next minute, the next day at the 12 p.m. class, this guy pops out and he was like, I did the Mongol Derby last year. And he's like, and it's going to change your fucking life. And I was like, oh my God. So, and I just started bumping into all these people who had done it. No one had ever heard of it before. And all of a sudden there were things coming at me left, right and center that were all to do with this Derby. So yeah, that's how that came about. And then with all the stuff I've done with you guys and living, you know, I really wanted to use it to have a more positive impact. So I'm actually trying to raise hundred grand for living. That is incredible. That is incredible. It, well, it'll be incredible if I survive the wild dogs and the wolves and the drunken nomads that are apparently prolific out there. Someone sent me a podcast the other day and it was literally this guy who walked across the Mongolian desert and had to like deal with these drunken nomads. And he said it was the most terrifying experience of his life. Now, you know me, I can't navigate my way 
out of a paper bag, can't find my car in a car park. You cannot navigate <laughs> yourself with a GPS. That is how much you struggle. So I'm a little concerned that I might not find my way to the Emirates. It's all about the outlets, isn't it, Lex? It's all about the outlets. It's all about the outlets and spreading a good word. And speaking of you and spreading good word, you've been obviously a facilitator with our charity Living for, for quite a while. What do you find most enjoyable about working amongst the Living team? I love feeling that I'm contributing to a greater good. Like I love feeling that I have left somebody off, somebody better off than when I found them. I love the idea that, you know, and this is something I talk about in all of my talks is that, you know, in every single interaction that you have as a human, whether it be a smile, a kind word, saying someone's name, genuinely asking how they are, giving them a hug, you know, in every single interaction that you have, you absolutely have the power to change somebody's life, to make somebody's day, you know, potentially even save their life because we have no idea what somebody else is going through. And that makes me really happy to be able to do that. It's an incredible gift, you know, and I don't know why more people wouldn't want to use it. I mean, you hit the nail on the head there and everyone's got their own causes and their own outreach programs that they, they definitely gravitate towards and want to support and whatnot. Obviously, you've got a passion and an interest in living in mental health awareness, improving people's mental health through early intervention and early prevention and obviously suicide prevention. That being said, you're in a very near-death experience yourself not so long ago. Can you talk to us about that and what you got out of that? So two years ago, two and a half years ago now, I was diagnosed with degenerative osteoarthritis in my left hip. And that was like devastating enough in itself because obviously I've always identified with being physically strong. And I was like, Jesus Christ, I can barely move now. Like I can barely get out of bed. I can't walk across the street. I can't, you know, if I'm in the gym, I'm sitting in the corner with my crutches. It was really confronting for me to all of a sudden feel like I had my identity taken away from me and I was in pain all the time. And it was like very socially isolating, but that was kind of only the tip of the iceberg. I went through that pain for eight to 10 months. And then I had five orthopedic surgeons that were like, if you don't have a full hip replacement, you're not going to walk again. And I was like, shit, okay, it's that serious. All right, well, book me in. Then you would have feared for your life in itself because the fitness side was your life. That was your outlets. That's how you survived. You said earlier, fitness saved your life. So on that, talk to me, please. It was August the 12th, 2017. I was admitted into hospital into St. Vincent's to have my hip replacement. And I'd kind of been like, okay, I'm an athlete. I've been through a ton of challenges in my life. I'm just going to go in. I'm going to get this bionic hip. I'm going to come out. I'm going to be as good as new. going to be sweet as, you know, that whole mentality that you have. And then, you know, shit never goes to plan. You know, I went into the hospital. I was admitted at 8 a.m. in the morning. At 12 p.m., I woke up in ICU on a breathing tube, unable to breathe by myself. And I had three of my best friends standing over my hospital bed, like crying, and I wake up just going, what the hell is going on here? It turns out I had flatlined in surgery. So I'd had an anaphylactic reaction to my antibiotics. I had flatlined four times and had to be resuscitated. So, you know, the way I describe it is up until that point, if you'd have asked me what I did, I would have said I had a job. Like I was a personal trainer. That was my job. After that experience... There was no white light. There was no conversation with Jesus that I can remember. I had 137 DMs asking me that question. But what there was was this absolute moment of clarity about the type of person I wanted to be and the type of impact I wanted to have on the people around me. And following that, I would have said, like, I absolutely knew that I had a purpose. And it's really interesting because the last thing that I had done before I went into surgery was deliver a Living Well presentation at a school in Townsville. 
And I'd spoken to one student who had lost three people in the space of a year, like her father, her uncle, and one of her best mates, all to suicide. And it was like heartbreaking. And as I was delivering this presentation, I was just looking at this young girl on the front row who had her head in her hands and she was like bawling her eyes out. And I'm sharing my story. I hadn't even had the hip yet, so it wasn't even a cool story. But I was sharing my story and I kept watching her throughout the whole presentation. And at the end of it, she waited around until everybody had left. And she came up to me and she gave me the biggest, the most beautiful hug. God, it still makes me emotional thinking about it. And she was just like, thank you. Today you saved my life. And I just remember standing there going, holy shit, what has just happened? And she was like, today was going to be the day that I killed myself. But hearing you share your story has made me realize that I am not alone and I'm going to ask for help. So thank you. And I was just like, wow, this is what life is about. And that's the first thing that I remembered when I woke up in ICU. And I was like, I want more of those moments and I want more of those conversations. Because I had no idea how powerful an impact that you can have on somebody just by sharing your own story and making them feel like they're not alone. And I was like, this is what I want to do. And I've tried to do that every single day of my life since. And Lexa, I can see and I can hear it. You're welling up as you're retelling that story. My arm hairs are lightening up right now. Uh, it's a very moving story, but it's, it's, it's something that's absolutely happening right here, right now, especially in Australia and the United States. People are taking their life by suicide all the time. And it's something that we are trying to address as a collective so that we can spread the good word and save more lives. And I appreciate all the work that you, you keep doing for living. I appreciate the challenges, I guess, that you're putting yourself into. You're risking your life in the, you know, the Mongolian race, I can tell you right now. <laughs> But you're doing it all for a great cause and I know, I know how much that means to you and I understand how hard you'd be working to get through that and to make that a, a success for yourself. And I'm excited to watch that journey. How can people find you, Lex? How can people support you, follow you on social media and follow the journey that you're on? Probably the best way is Instagram. I'm at Action Alexa, obviously, because I'm all about action. And I have a GoFundMe page for the Mongol Derby if anyone wants to have a look at what I'm doing, exactly why I'm doing it, and then how they can help. But um, it'll be incredible. You'll be able to follow the journey through the Mongol Derby page as well. They've got an official Instagram page and they'll have live updates. So hopefully I won't be having my own little party on the Russian lines. Hopefully I'll actually finish the race <laughs> with everything intact. <laughs> I've got all the faith in the world. And I think you'll get through it stronger than ever. And you and I both know, Alexa, you'll make uh, and learn something new from it, no doubt. Regardless of the challenge that you face, you'll learn something from it. And whoever you touch and whoever you speak with amongst that journey and along that journey, you will certainly make their day better, that's for sure. Because I know the person you are, I know what you stand for, and I know how persistent you are, but you're very laser-focused on things. You know what you want, and, and when you know what you want, you, you generally get it. So, um, yeah, I just want to say thank you for taking the time out to, to have a chat with me. But before we close this off and before we wrap up another episode of It Ain't Week to Speak, what's the one best piece of advice that you've received in your life? Look, biggest piece of advice and one that I tell everyone, you never regret being kind. If there's anything in life that you, there's a ton of things that you can regret in life, being kind is never one of them. Being the bigger person is never one of them. You might not get to control things that are happening around you, but you absolutely get to control how you react to them. And that can change 
everything in an instant. But if you always remember who you are, what you stand for, and you're that person in every single interaction, you can't really go wrong. Just be your authentic self and be kind. What would you say to someone right now who, who is maybe struggling in silence? I would ask them to remember the last time a friend came to them with something, with some sort of problem, big or small, and asked for their help. And I would ask them how it felt to be able to help that person just by listening to them. And then remember how good a person that they felt and how amazing that experience was to be trusted with somebody else's journey. I would ask them to flip that switch and apply it to themselves because that's essentially what you are empowering somebody else with when you share. Because sharing your story could be the one thing that somebody else needs to hear in order to start a conversation about their own. Which could potentially save someone's life and no doubt change someone's life. Absolutely. Great piece of advice to wrap up the show with Lex. Uh, we can continue this conversation uh, on the Facebook group at living.org. You guys will be able to continue the conversation here. We'll put all the show notes where you can find Lexi, Alexa, Action Alexa. <laughs> all the show notes will be there, guys. But that's another episode of It Ain't Week to Speak. Lex, thanks so much for your time. I love you. I'm going to leave you. And um, we're going to speak real soon. Look after yourself. You too, honey munch. Thank you again for listening in to another episode of It Ain't Week to Speak. Please like, share, and spread the love to as many people as you can. Let people know that you subscribe to the show. Don't forget to leave a review or a comment so that we can grow this community together because a conversation could save a life. If you want to continue this chat, please join me on the podcast Facebook group at living.org. I can't wait to share the next episode with you, but in the meantime, stay well, keep living, and remember, it ain't weak to speak. Thank you and have a top day. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> <laughs>